All right. Let me pray for us real quick, and, and we'll get going. All right, guys, let's pray, and we'll get started. God, thank you so much just for a chance to be here and to hear your truth and to fellowship with one another. Um, I just pray that your spirit would invade our hearts tonight and that you would um, comfort us where we need to be comforted and that you would break us where we need to be broken and that you would just speak to us, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to respond. We are so grateful for you and for your faithfulness. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, we're going to be in Mark 6, 30 through 56 tonight. That's where we're going to be picking it up. Heidi is going to be our reader. So Heidi, let's go ahead and do 6, 30 through 32. Okay, so this is saying apostles returned to Jesus and told them all they had done and taught. Where have they been? Preaching the gospel. Can you be a little more specific of the kingdom? Okay, so just we've had fall break. There's been there's been a little bit of time lapse. So just to refresh our memories, yes, they are out preaching the kingdom. This is specifically when a few, I think it's just maybe one chapter ago, Jesus has sent them out two by two to go do what? Teaching, that's, that's part of it. What else did he command them to do? You remember? Casting out all the devils. Cast out all the devils. Thank you, Anthony. What else? Heal the sick, right? And what is his kind of charge to them? What, what can they not do? Yeah, they can take nothing, right? You can't take any money. You can't take any bread. You can't even take a change of clothes. That's kind of his charge. And he pairs them up two by two and he sends them out. Uh, Mark doesn't really tell us how long that they've been gone, but I would assume it was a while. Um, Mark also does something interesting here. This is the, the second place in his book that he uses the specific word apostle to describe the disciples. And that basically means sent one. It's just a really good reminder for us that it's not something when Jesus sent them out where, okay, you've, you've, you've grown up in your faith and now you've graduated and, and now you can go. Now I release you and you can preach. It wasn't anything like that at all. They are under the authority of Jesus. They are still tied to him. And so their job is um, basically just messengers of the kingdom. That's what they are. Everything that they're doing um, is not in their own power. So they're being obedient. They go out. They do what Jesus asked them to do. And they come back reporting back to him. And they stay with him until he's ready to do something else with them. Until he has another command for them. Which he does here. He says, let's go away. Um, let's go away by ourselves. I'm sure they were exhausted. I'm sure it's one of those things. They've experienced God doing all of this stuff. It's probably been an incredible time. But you know they've got to be weary after all that. They've seen um, God's provision. They've been trusting him. So now Jesus is telling them, all right, let's get away. I'm sure the disciples are thinking vacation, right? We're finally going to get to go get a little bit of rest. Because this tells us what? They can't even eat. They don't even have time to eat. So many people have been coming and going. And that's kind of where they are is just in that exhausted place. Um, so Jesus says, let's go away and rest together. Okay. Heidi, read uh, 33 and 34. Now many saw them coming and going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. 
When they went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Okay, see if I can get the Apple TV to work. Okay, so basically, they get into the boat, and what happens? This is kind of uh, the map of Galilee, and you can see here, it's, it's, the Sea of Galilee is not all that far. You see all, it's about 20 miles wide. You see all these little villages and towns surrounding the whole area. Okay, and essentially what's happening here, Mark is, is again emphasizing Jesus' superstar popularity. They get into the boat, they're heading away. Jesus has told them they're going for a rest. And the crowds beat them there, running on foot. It's that small town mentality, right? Up. Oh. He's going over here. Did you know that paparazzi existed in Jesus' day? Like, that's what's happening. I mean, they are racing. So, you know, they're, they're looking forward to this. They're thinking, okay, we're getting away. Oh, no, no such thing. All these people, word has spread. You know, everybody's going and getting their grandma. Come on, let's go. I mean, they're all. And so Mark doesn't actually tell us where this deserted place is. Um, we just know that they got into the boat on the Sea of Galilee to go there, wherever Jesus was taking them. Um, and when they get there, all the people from these surrounding villages have arrived. And so in the disciples' mind, you know, maybe they're thinking, oh, well, you know, he told us that we are going away to rest. He's going to send them home. Or maybe they know Jesus a little better than that because that's not at all what Jesus does, right? Um, the text actually says that Jesus has compassion on them because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And the word used for compassion um, is is I thought it was really interesting. It's only ever described in the New Testament. That word is only ever used to describe Jesus. Or if Jesus is telling a parable, he will use it as a description of someone who is representing himself. Those are the only times it's ever used. And it means more than just to feel sorry for somebody or to have pity on someone. That word actually means to be inwardly moved to the point of action. Okay? So it is much more than just empathy or a quick fleeting feeling. No, it, it leads to action. And here we see Jesus' response to that, to that compassion for seeing them like sheep without a shepherd. His response is to start teaching them. Mark doesn't even tell us, you know, why, why are they showing up in, in this particular instance? I'm assuming it would be to be healed. But that's not what Jesus does immediately. Maybe some healings took place, but Jesus sees them and he recognizes the need. He knows what they really need. And he starts teaching them. That's his response. Um, let's keep going. 35 through 37, Heidi. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them? Oh. oh. Yeah, that's good. Right there. Okay. So the disciples are being a little bit sarcastic here when they ask this question to Jesus. Um, first of all, it says it's starting to get late, right? You know the disciples have to be getting concerned. We just read a few verses before that they haven't even had time to eat. And I would like to think that they're... They're considering the crowd and their true needs here, but I, I have a feeling it's more, <laughs> we just heard they didn't have time to eat. Now it's getting late. They're starving, um, but maybe they do. Maybe they are feeling for the crowd as well. The crowd seems to not care, and Jesus um, seems to not care either. They're just all still there, and they're being taught. 
So they kind of pull him aside and, you know, get on to him a little bit. Like, Jesus, you obviously are not realizing what time it is. We need to send these people away to go eat. It's getting very late. And they're thinking to themselves, my stomach is growling. I am starving. We've been in a boat all day. We've been on the water. We've been listening to you teach. I want something to eat. Um, And so then Jesus says, you feed them. And rather than realize, stop and think, everything that they had just experienced on their missionary journey, everything that we saw that Drew explained to us just a few weeks ago about what Jesus has power over. You guys remember the things that we saw that Jesus has power over? What are the four specific things? Nature, Nature, death, demons, and sickness. Jesus has power over all of those things. The disciples have just had firsthand experience of trusting God to provide for them and also trusting that God's going to do what he said, that they're going to be able to heal people and cast out demons. They've just witnessed all of this. And instead of being a little attentive to what Jesus was going to do here, they just start getting sarcastic. Like, oh, okay, yeah, you want us to feed them. Okay, Jesus, do you really want me to go and spend? It would have been eight months worth of a salary. We don't know if they had the money or not. Um, But even if they did have that money, it's not like there was a Pizza Hut or like a Chick-fil-A, right, where they can go grab food for all these people. I mean, that's not going to happen. So anyway, this is kind of where we're at. They're, they're feeling kind of, you know, astounded that Jesus would ask this of them. It really makes me think of, I don't, for those of you who grew up in church and maybe went to church camp in high school, it really makes me think of like a church camp high, right? Because they just experienced all this. You guys have witnessed that. There's the guy or the girl who, you know, at, in the five days gets so, you know, quote unquote, what seems to be on fire for Jesus has all these experiences and then leaves. And two days later, you're back home and you hear they're partying, right? And they're back to their old ways. So the disciples have just got done experience all this that Jesus has done in them and through them. And here they are just being sarcastic. Okay, let's keep going, 38 through 44. And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. He commanded them to sit down in groups on the green grass. And so they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing, and broke the loaves, and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. He divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And they looked or they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Okay. I want to just point out that last verse again, that last line. Those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Did Mark say that many men ran to this wilderness and this desolate place? Nope. He said many people, right? So we can safely assume that there were about twenty to 25,000 people here where this is taking place, that those men are representative of families that are there. I mean, 5,000, that's a big number. I don't know about you guys. That's a big number. But twenty to 25,000, that is absolutely mind-blowing. And Jesus cracks me up here because he doesn't really answer the disciples' question when they're being all sarcastic. He's just like, show me what you have, you know. And then, boom, roasted. He's just done it. <laughs> and his response to the disciples, this also cracked me up, he puts them to work. 
So he tells him, I'm going to, basically he blesses the bread, he blesses the fish, and then he's like, here, go serve these 25,000 people. You go pass it out. And then the text also tells us that at the end, they had to clean it up. Anybody here in food service? Y'all know how long that took? Serving those 25,000 people and then cleaning all of that up. Jesus has them. Jesus, no, I know. That's a lot, right? I mean, that is a lot. Jesus has them serving, serving these people and giving them plenty of time to think about the miracle that's taking place and what has just transpired. Um, I want to go ahead and, and break from here for just a second and go to Exodus 16. Heidi's going to read verses 1 through 5 here in just a second. From this miraculous feeding, we can kind of see two big biblical themes um, that are emerging. And the first one we're about to read in Exodus is um, that this is not the first time God's provided his people with miraculous food. Go ahead and read that, Heidi. Okay, so this is where we see it, right? God bringing his people out of Egypt into the wilderness. Where are we right now? Wilderness. It's a desolate place. God bringing them out and miraculously providing them food. The interesting thing about this is it's not Moses who's providing the food, right? He's God's spokesperson. So he's, you know, he's the mouth or whatever and doing what God asked him to do. But they're in their tent every night, and when they come out in the morning, that's when the manna is there, right? God is the one sending it. But here we see Jesus is the one who is blessing this food, breaking it, and performing this miracle. These people are Jewish, right? I would hope, I would hope that these people all these many 20, 25,000 people, maybe more, but especially the disciples, I would hope that the wheels would start turning. And that, I mean, they knew their Torah. They knew their Old Testament and their Bible. The Old Testament's all they had. They knew it very, very well. I would hope that they would start thinking, we've seen this before, the arm of God feeding his people. Who is this? We've seen he has power over all of these things. He sent us out. He's given us authority. Now he's even doing this. You would hope that, that that's where their mind would be going, but unfortunately the text is going to tell us that that's not what happens at all. Um, another really neat thing about this passage is just a prophecy that it fulfills um, that's found in Ezekiel 34, and Heidi's going to read that for us. Um, it's Ezekiel 34, 11 through 24. The whole chapter is great. I would encourage you just to read it when you have time. But Heidi, go ahead and do 11 through 24. shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, 
So I will seek out my sheep, and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples, and gather them from the countries, and I will bring them into their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture, and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. And there they shall lie down in good grazing land. On rich pasture they shall feed in the mountains of Israel. I myself will be shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. For as, you, er, as for you, my flock, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. It is not enough for you to feed on the good pasture, that you must tread down with your feet the rest of the pasture, to drink of clean water, that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet. And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet, and drink what you have muddied with your feet? Therefore, says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, my, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep, because you will push the side with the shoulder and thrust all the weak with your horns, till you have scattered them abroad. I will rescue my flock, they shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep, and I will set out or set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them, he shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I of the Lord will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord and I have spoken. And so here we see God making his word come to pass and Jesus fulfilling that very prophecy. And the first part of that chapter is all about the leadership of Israel and how corrupt it's been and how terrible it's been. And then God comes along and says, I'm going to send um, those last couple of verses, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. Who is that? Jesus, Jesus from the line of David. And he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David, Jesus, shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, and I have spoken. And so we see him doing not only... Um, feeding the people just as this is prophesied, but also that line about him seeing um, the sheep that are lost without a shepherd and him feeling that compassion and being moved to do something about it. It's a pretty cool thing on this side that we get to turn around and see how God um, has lined up his word and how he has fulfilled it. It's a pretty incredible thing. And I'm not saying that the disciples should have you know, put together what Ezekiel is saying and seeing that this has happened. You know, Mark's kind of telling us Jesus' thoughts when he says that he has compassion on them because they were like sheep um, without a shepherd. I'm not saying that, but I just, I want you to understand the Old Testament is full of these themes um, of what God is doing and the way that he has miraculously worked. And then Jesus is now on the scene. You would hope that they would start to ask the question, who is this guy? He's a lot more than a prophet but I don't think they're there yet. Okay, we're going to keep going. Um, Mark 6, 45 and 46. Immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to the Seda, where mm -hmm. he dismissed the crowd, or while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. All right, and we can see Jesus um, <laughs> acting right away. I don't know why he had to make them get into the boat, but... We see Mark using one of his favorite words right here. What's one of his favorite words? Did you, did you catch it? Immediately. So we're told that they clean up after the crowd. They pick everything up into the basket. And then right away, Jesus hasn't even dismissed the crowd yet. He is making them 
get into the boat to go away. Some vacation, right? Some, some getting away to rest, huh? But um, I, I'm wondering, Mark doesn't really tell us why he had to make them. I'm wondering if one of the reasons is just we already know how late it's getting. You think how late it would be after all these people have eaten and everything has been cleaned up. Um, and we talked a while ago about how quickly storms can come up on the Sea of Galilee, right? Because of the lay of the land. It can just happen like that. I'm wondering if part of the reason Jesus had to make them do that is just because it's maybe irresponsible in their minds. Starting to get very dark, starting to get very late. This is not the time you would be out traveling on your boat. Um, so the text doesn't tell us. We can only wonder. But we do know this. Jesus tells them they've got to get into the boat. He's sending them away. And Jesus goes up by himself on a mountain to pray and spend time with God. Okay, 47 through 50. About the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Through, keep going, I'm sorry. Yeah, and yeah. until, um, stop at 53. Okay, and he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded. For they did not understand about the loaves, and their hearts were hardened. Okay. So you can kind of picture this scene. The disciples are out there in the middle of the sea. We know previously, whenever Jesus calms the storm, they wake him up. Um, a few chapters ago, they wake him up. Why? Do you remember? They think they're drowning, right? They wake him up and they tell him, like, "Don't! how are you asleep? We're all going to die. Don't you care that we're going to die? And Jesus just takes care of it right there. That's what happens. So they don't seem to be like in danger of losing their lives right here. Um, but we do know that the wind is really fierce. And they would have been in a sailboat. They would have had oars. I can just see them out there getting a workout, spinning around in circles, you know, trying to get where they're going. Who knows how long they'd been out there. Um, Mark tells us it was about the fourth watch of the night, which would have been anywhere from 3 to 6 a.m., Super dark. Anybody been out lately from 3 to 6 a.m.? That's like the spooky part of the night, right? They're out there just, you know, you know they're tired by now. Anybody ever rode before just even a mile? That's a lot of work. So they're out there just spinning their wheels. Jesus is on the mountain spending time with God. And I have to assume supernaturally he sees their struggle. Either that or he's just like, boom, binoculars. <laughs> sees it. There they are. Right? We have to assume it's supernaturally. He sees their struggle. He knows what's happening. And then, something really peculiar. We see this line. Jesus starts walking on the sea, and he meant to pass by them. He meant to pass by them. What in the world does that mean? He meant to go by them, but he doesn't? That's something to think on. Drew's going to talk to us a little bit about that here in a while. He means to go by them, but he doesn't. They see him, and again, where are their hearts at? Rather than knowing all that Jesus has brought them through and this amazing event that they just witnessed, rather than knowing, okay, he just put us in this boat, he's always taking care of us, he has power over nature, he knows what's going on, rather than just thinking, okay, we're going to be fine, they are freaking out. And when they see Jesus coming, 
It doesn't even enter their mind that it might be Jesus. That is not even on their radar. What do they say? Something practical. It's a ghost. (laughs) And then Jesus says, don't be afraid. You guys ever seen horror movies? The thing you're afraid of says, don't be afraid. I mean, that's, anyway, that's a little spooky right there. Anyway, he gets into the boat, and everything calms down immediately. And it says that they are utterly astounded and that their hearts had been hardened. They did not understand about the loaves. They still aren't getting it. They've just experienced everything that Jesus has been doing and has done and seen his power over and over and over and over and over. And here they are just sitting amazed. And the the text, Mark tells us that their hearts had been hardened. I want you guys to just be thinking about that. Drew's going to answer some of those questions for us here in just a little bit. Okay, let's keep going, Heidi. Um, 53 through 56. When they had crossed over, they came to the land at Gennesaret and moored to the shores. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, They laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched were made well. Okay. When they first got into the boat, where did Jesus say they were going? But to where? Do you remember? Bethsaida, right? That's where he put them into the boat and it says he sent them to the other side to go there. Where did they just wind up? Yeah. Whether they were just blown off course, Jesus allowed that to happen... Um, I don't know. But again, the exact same scenario, he's recognized immediately and the whole region, everyone is coming. Wherever he came in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they could even touch him. As a Jewish man, Jesus would have worn robes. He would have had tassels. So we, we see kind of just this theme of people are after Jesus over and over and over but not for who he is, it's for what they can get. Think about health care at that time, right? I think sometimes we, we read through the Gospels and maybe we have, you know, just our modern-day mind is, is coming with us. But how many of you guys in here either wear contacts or glasses? Raise your hand. Blind. All of you. I mean, that's what you would have been coming to Jesus for. There, there was no doctor to go to. You know, I mean, nothing like that. You would have just been considered blind. Okay, there was no such thing as prenatal care. So there were way more birth defects. If you're on the job and you fall down and break your leg, guess what? There is no cast. Maybe you could, like, kind of make a a splint, but there's no guarantee you're going to walk again after something like that. Right? I mean, you, you can imagine the water there oftentimes made people really sick. There's all kinds of diseases and stuff that they're dealing with. They don't have anything anywhere near like what we have today. Um, And so Jesus is it for them. So they are coming in droves. But notice that Mark doesn't say anything here about teaching. Doesn't sound like anybody's asking Jesus to teach here. They're just all coming for what they can get. And the amazing thing is Jesus continues to care for them through healing, through teaching them, when he sees they need it, through feeding them. He's absolutely a compassionate God. And the even more amazing thing, in my mind, is that he's still continuing to use the disciples, even though they don't get it. 
Even though they don't get it, he is still using them. And he's going to work on them and those hard hearts. Just want you guys to be thinking over that. The next few minutes, we're going to break, and then Drew's going to come wrap us up and talk to us more about that. Praise All right, that was fun. Um, okay, so I want to talk through um, a couple of the questions that, that Rachel kind of raised in that uh, passage. I thought she did a great job breaking down some of the stuff that was going on, but there are some strange little comments and some strange occurrences in this passage. Um, things that I kind of overlooked for, for a while, but, but there's some that have always a little bit been on my mind, because this is true, that, that when Jesus does miracles, the point of the miracles are never just the miracles themselves, right? He doesn't show up to do miracles just for their own sake, just because, hey, that's cool. Um, they're always pointing to a greater reality. Usually they are revealing truths about the kingdom and revealing truths about Jesus himself, and, and so they are meaning to point to something. And obviously also there's, there's generally a benefit to people. Someone comes who could not see before and now they can see. Someone comes who could not walk before and now they can walk. All of these things generally are what's taking place with miracles. But what about walking on water? Um, I've always thought, I've told you before, I, I sometimes you know, think in my head, like what would be like the top five Jesus miracles I wish I could see? And walking on water would probably be one of them because it, is, it just sounds really stinking cool. But I, this has been in my mind uh, multiple times before. Like, what's the point? It, it seems like one of the coolest miracles. It also seems like one of the most pointless miracles and that nobody really benefits from it very much. Nobody gains from it. It seems almost more like a cool party trick that Jesus is doing for his disciples, right? For them to see him do this thing. So why? Like, what's the point of all this? Um, and, and so that's a big question that, that kind of has been in my head about this text for a while. But there are a couple other questions that I, as I've been studying this text more recently, really popped into my head. And, and the first one Rachel hit on, what in the world is happening when it says that Jesus meant to pass by them? Like, what? What is that? Why does he intend to pass? So they intended to pass by him, but then they were terrified and thought it was a ghost, and so Jesus came over and got in the boat. It almost sounds like he's trying to like sneak past them, right? And, and get over to the other side, and they see him, and he's like, ah, crap, okay. You know, got to go help these guys. You know, when he goes and he climbs into the boat to help them, it, it, it seems kind of odd. What does it mean that he's trying to pass them by? And then this question is one that I remember um, hitting me a year or two ago. Mark says that they, he gets in the boat, the waves stop, and they're astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves. What? <laughs> like what, what, is, what does bread have to do with Jesus walking on water? And, and what is it about the loaves that if they had understood it, then they wouldn't have been so astounded? What's, what's happening there? What is Mark describing and talking about when he says those things? Well, the truth is, as, as I study, started studying this, uh, this week, I discovered that all three of those questions are actually connected. And if you answer one, then the rest of them start to come together as well. 
um, that specific one that I want to focus on first, and then we kind of see as the first one is what is happening when Jesus is intending to pass them by? Why does Jesus say what want to pass them by? And I need a marker here. Where's my? Thank you very much. Um, there are actually a number of different explanations that that commentators and scholars have tried to offer for this. Um, one of the things you, you notice, actually, as you read it, is that he, he sent them off for Bethsaida, but they land in Gennesaret. Okay, so I think Bethsaida is northeast, Gennesaret is west, um, and so they get blown off course. So they're blown off course by the wind and waves, or they just get so um, kind of lost amongst, amongst all the, the waves and all that stuff that's happening that they kind of lose their bearings. And so one of the um, theories is that Jesus is trying to pass by them to get in front of them, and they'd be like, follow me, guys, okay? Um, but that just seems sort of weird, um, since as soon as he steps in the boat, the wind and waves stop. Like, it seems like that would have been an easier solution than just keep rowing into the waves, walk after me, right? Um, and, and then there are, like, one of the suggestions that people have said is actually literally that he's intending to get by them and, quote, playfully surprise them when they get onto the other side. <laughs> like, um, so, literally, like, you can see them, you can see them, like, getting off on the other side, and they're worn out, and they're soaking wet, and Jesus is like, hey! <laughs> right? Um, and, like, that's, because this is, so this is how ridiculous some of these suggestions have gotten because people don't know what to do with this. Um, but, but there are actually two Greek words in this passage, actually one phrase, one is a phrase and one is a word, that really shed light on, I think, what is actually taking place in this verse. Um, the first one, or in this story, the first one is, as I said, a phrase, and it's, if you were transliterating or whatever... I'm starting to write in Greek. I don't know Greek, but every now and then it just kind of... I know the symbols enough to be dangerous, so that makes sense. So I'll start to write in that. Okay, so um, this phrase right here, ego a me, ego a me, this is the phrase that pops up there in verse 50, I think. For they all saw him, actually, yeah, for they all saw him and were terrified, but immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Ego a me is translated here, it is I. And it can be used that way, like it is I, it can be stated that way. But here's actually, literally, actually, they have to switch it around because you would have to say "ami ego" to actually get that kind of "is I" little bit. Here's literally what those two words mean. So, when Jesus speaks to them and they're terrified and they think it's a ghost, literally what Jesus says to them is, "Take heart, I am." He's employing the name of God that's used throughout the Old Testament to describe him. He's actually using the exact same phrase that he uses in John 8 when he's debating with the religious leaders about him and he talks about how Abraham longed to see my day. He rejoiced to look forward to my day. And they said, you're not even 50 years old and you want to tell me that you're old enough to know Abraham? And what Jesus says is, I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. 
and we go, like today, we might go, someone might read that and think, is, is he saying he's really old? Is he saying? But the Jewish people knew exactly what he was saying because John says as soon as he uttered those words, they start picking up stones to throw them at him. Jesus says to them out on the water, take heart, don't be afraid, I am. Now, here's the other one that's kind of interesting, and this is the word perercomai. Okay, and this is, this is the actual phrase that we're asking about, or the actual word, to pass by. He wanted to pass them, perercomai. What is actually he talking about when he uses that word? Now, this word, it, it, it is used just for this, pass by, and it's used in regular kind of everyday talk and all those things, but it's actually also used in a few key, really important texts in the Septuagint. When I say Septuagint, what am I talking about? The Greek Old Testament. So, um, in Jesus' day, um, most of the world is speaking Greek, most of the known world, and there are a lot of Jews that are spread throughout the world. Um, they don't live in Palestine, and a number of them don't know how to read Hebrew, and so this, there was this issue. We need to make sure that the Jewish people know how to read the Scriptures, know how to read the Bible, the Old Testament, what it was at that time. And so, they translated it into the Greek, and it's called the Septuagint. Um, this is kind of the symbol sometimes, Septuagint having this idea of 70, and so it's the Roman numeral for 70 sometimes you see. So the Greek Old Testament is called Septuagint. In the Greek Old Testament, this Greek word is used in a couple really, actually it's used in a number of really interesting passages. I'm just going to read two of them to you right now. First one is from Exodus 33. And this is where uh, Moses is pleading with God and saying, listen, we don't want to go forward into the lane unless we know that you're going with us. And so please show us that you're with us. Show me that you're with me, that you're, you're here and that you're going to walk with me in this. And this is what the text says. Exodus 33, verse 17. Just listen. And Yahweh said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness, perekomai, you, pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And Yahweh said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory, perekomai, passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock. And I will cover you with my hand until I have, until I have perekomai passed by. The next one is from 1 Kings 19. And this is where Elijah has just had this big battle on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal. Actually, it's God having a battle with Baal himself, and it's no contest. Um, but, but afterwards, Elijah fears for his life because he's just upset the king and, and, and his queen. And so he flees for his life and he runs and he hides off in the wilderness. And, and Elijah is in a very kind of desperate spot where he feels like he's the only one serving God and the only one doing these things. And so God shows up and begins to speak to him. It says this, There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, or Elijah said, I have been very jealous 
for Yahweh, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And Yahweh said, Go out and stand on the mount before Yahweh, and behold, Yahweh, Perekomide, passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke to pieces, broke to pieces the rocks before the Lord. So, what do these two passages that I just read have in common? <laughs> yeah, they're called, this is, this is the phrase, they're called theophanies. A revelation of the glory of God before human beings. Both of them use this word, actually this gets used a number of times in the Septuagint when it says that Jacob wrestled with the Lord, wrestled with the angel, it says that um, the face of Yahweh passed him by what it says. And so, when people see God, when God reveals Himself to people, this is the word that gets used. So when Jesus comes out to them, and it says He intended to pass them by, but they were terrified and thought they saw a ghost. I always thought that was, He intended to pass them by, but they got scared so He had to come. It's actually, I think, saying He intended to reveal His glory as God, but they got scared and saw a ghost instead. And so he has to go and comfort them. But, but this is a huge thing that is taking place. This is um, a major thing. When you add to this the fact that in the Jewish understanding that, that the sea was often viewed as and used as, and you see it in the Old Testament, you see it all the way through to Revelation, it is seen as kind of a chaotic place where people don't have control and there's only one person who's ever fully had control and that's God. Job 9.8 says this, that God alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Psalm 89.9 says, You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. So Jesus, what he's doing here by walking on the water, it's not a party trick. And it's, it's not him just trying to catch up because he's got to take a shortcut across. No, no, he, he walks on water because he intends to pass them by. He walks on water because he intends to reveal the glory of God in himself to them, and yet they miss it. And that actually leads us to that other question. What does understanding the loaves have to do with this? Well, the truth is, is since Mark is connecting them, it tells us that there's something bigger behind the loaves too. In the same way that there's something bigger, a bigger truth to him walking on water, and he's revealing more of himself than they can see when he walks on water. He's doing the same thing when he feeds the people. And Rachel already shared that with you. When was the last time we saw a guy in the wilderness with a bunch of Israelites feeding them miraculously and teaching them the Word of God. Moses, right? Moses, when he is establishing the nation of Israel and bringing them the covenant of God, bringing them a new covenant. And what is taking place, actually, there's, there's, a, there's a reason, and I never actually fully understood this. This story of the feeding of the 5,000 is one of the only ones that is recorded in all four Gospels. That tells us something. That tells us that every one of them said, my readers need to know about this one. Even John. So we know that the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they tell the same stories a lot. Um, But John is the one who wrote after them, and he wants to kind of give a new perspective. But even when we get to John, he goes, no, no, I can't leave this one out. Because there's too much importance to it. There's too much going on. We see here Jesus saying, I'm bringing the new kingdom. I'm bringing the new revelation from God. I'm bringing... I'm bringing the new covenant. 
And, and he's reliving out what, what took place with the birth of Israel, with the birth of the first kingdom, um, all the way back in Exodus. And so their ability, he says, if, if, if they had been able to see what was actually taking place. Here's the other crazy thing. In almost all of the miracles you see in the book of Mark, they almost all finished with, and everyone was astonished. And everyone marveled. And everyone was like, man, what is going on? This one, actually, that doesn't get recorded. Like Jesus feeds 5,000 people, and, and, and maybe there was a reaction. Mark doesn't record any reaction from anybody. Nobody goes, this is amazing. Um, it's like they kind of missed it. And Mark says, if they had seen that, if they had seen what was going on there, then they would have understood and seen what was happening when Jesus was passing them by. The answer to the question they asked in the last storm, who is this man? just got answered when Jesus passed them by. Um, That's who He is. He is God Himself revealing who He is. But they cannot see in both instances. They miss it because, Mark says, their hearts were hardened. This is a term that has actually come up before in the book of Mark, um, but but it was used before on Jesus' enemies. You remember Jesus is in, the Sabbath, is in the synagogue on the Sabbath and there's a man with a shriveled hand and Jesus stands up and says, which is better, um, to, to help to do good or to do wrong, to, to restore or to, to, to hurt someone, to inflict pain? And, and Because he knows what they want to do and he's asking, which is better on the Sabbath? Because he knows they're all looking for a way to trap him. If, if he heals this guy, then they can say he worked on the Sabbath and therefore you can't trust him. And so they're all looking for this. And Jesus asks this question and he looks around and nobody wants to answer. And it says this, that Jesus was deeply disturbed at their hardened hearts. And so this phrase has gotten used on Jesus' enemies before. Now it gets used on his disciples. And the only other time it gets used in the book of Mark is again on these 12 disciples which is kind of strange. Like, we expect that to take place with Jesus' enemies. But think about the things we've heard about and we've read about with these 12 men so far. These are men who have been walking around with Jesus for some time. They've heard Him teaching about the kingdom uh, over and over again. They're actually on the inside group. When Jesus stands up and He tells the parables and a number of people walk away scratching their heads, Jesus actually pulls the disciples aside and explains what's actually going on. So they, they've got the inside information on Jesus. They've seen Him perform miracle after miracle and do all these incredible things. Not only that, they've gone out and done miracles on His behalf. In His name, they've cast out demons. They've gone and preached for Him and they don't know who He is. Like They still are missing Him. Their hearts are still hardened. It says they've got clues. They, they're seeing bits and pieces, but something in them is still blind to this. Think about this, that it is possible to be that close to Jesus. It is possible to be that close to the advancing of His kingdom, to the incredible things that are going on in His name and under His control and still miss Him. That's crazy. Now, now, there's something a little bit different that's going on with the disciples than there is with us because Jesus has not yet died and resurrected, which means they have not yet received the Holy Spirit. 
And it's the Holy Spirit that actually opens a person's eyes and allows them to see Jesus for who He is. And so they're in a little bit of a different spot than we are. And you've got to kind of give them some bit of grace in that. Jesus certainly does. He's patient with them during this whole time, even as they're missing out on these things. But they have this hardness of heart towards them. Here's the question, though. Is it possible to have a hardness of heart like that after you receive the Holy Spirit? Can you still have a hard heart towards Jesus when you have the Holy Spirit in your heart? It's a big question. And, and I want to answer that by saying yes and no. Or no and yes. Or whatever. Like I don't think that you can have it in the same way. There really does seem to be a specific kind of hardness that, um, that the Bible talks about for unbelievers. Paul talks about it in, I believe it's First um, Corinthians four, Second Corinthians four, where there is where there is a veil over the face of those people that 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 the devil puts over people's faces that in a, or disables their ability to see Jesus properly, and it's when the gospel is preached, and it's when the Spirit does a work, and then that veil is removed, and they're able to see Him for who He is, and so there's this specific kind of hardness um, that that has to do with with sin and being unregenerate and being not saved and, and, and God's wrath even being on you that doesn't allow you to see. But there is still another kind of hardness because when we, we talked about it last year when we were going through the book of Hebrews, over and over again this warning comes up, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts. And, and we believe that, that the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians, to people in the church, and he's telling them, don't harden your hearts. And, and that phrase never gets used in the book of First or Second Corinthians, but we know that, that we have some Christians there who are going um, far off from their ability to see and understand Jesus rightly. And so this does seem to be possible that someone could have a heart that is at least growing cold towards Jesus, even if they're in the middle of something like this every week hearing the word proclaimed, gathering together with other believers, seeing cool things happen in people's lives, being near to Jesus, that there can still be a coldness or maybe even a hardness in your heart that grows towards Him. So the question is, um, do you have that? And how do you know if you have that? Like what causes that in a person's life? I'm not actually going to get into too much talking about how to deal with that. What I want to do just briefly before we wrap up is list five things that we see in the gospel that seem to cause a hard heart towards Jesus. Five things that we've seen in Mark that cause a hardness of heart towards who Jesus is and the truth about Him. And I, and I think that these things affect unbelievers, but they actually have the ability to affect our own hearts even as those who know Him. First is this, and these are in no particular order. Fear of losing control or power. And we, see this, um, we see this most with the religious leaders of the day um, and the political leaders. 
that, that what seems to oftentimes steer them away from seeing the truth about Jesus is that they, they are afraid of losing the control that they have in that environment, afraid of losing the power that they have in this region and losing it to this young rabbi who's coming. And it doesn't matter how many amazing things he does, and it doesn't matter how many incredible truths he's teaching and preaching, they cannot see it, and in fact, they'd rather chalk all those amazing things up to the devil. Because their hearts are hard and they cannot miss it. Listen, I, probably none of you dealing with, you know, losing political power in this region of Stillwater, okay? Or of Oklahoma, okay? And I, I don't see that. Any, but, but there does seem to be this thing in which when we have a specific amount of control that we want to be able to keep over our own lives, like that is not compatible with a life of knowing and loving and following Jesus. And so the more... The more desirous I am to hold on to those things, the harder it will be to see Him and hear Him properly. Number two, the deceitfulness of wealth and a preoccupation with material needs. The deceitfulness of wealth, that's a direct quote from Jesus. He says that's that specific kind of soil that the Word comes to them and it takes root and they get excited about it and they're hearing it and it looks like it's even starting to bear fruit, but then weeds grow up and choke it out. And what he says is those weeds are the deceitfulness of wealth, the worries of life, and then he just says other things. But there are these things that come up in in which I so desire to be financially secure and comfortable and to be successful and to just get more and more. And Jesus says, the more you love money, the harder it is for you to know me. Harder it is for you to see me. The harder your heart will become. Number three, stubborn, preconceived ideas about who God is and how He works. And this is one we've talked about again with the scribes. They had such their own preconceived notion of what the Messiah was supposed to be and what God was really about and how He really operated and what the Messiah was going to do when He comes. And He's going to, of course, like enforce the Torah and all of our traditions just like we've been keeping Him for years. And He's going to, you know, raise up an army and get rid of Rome and set Israel back up as the prominent kingdom it once was when David was in control. And because they have such a narrow view of what the Messiah has to be, and if it's not this, then, then you can't be the Messiah. That caused them to miss Him. And, and again, we, we don't struggle necessarily with looking for a revolutionary to come start a war or anything like that. But we have plenty of our own ideas of what, like, Jesus is or what He ought to be and what God is really like, a God who is completely loving and would never be judgmental or never condemn anyone or never look down on somebody for their way of living. And we, have, we can get so caught up with that that we miss the real Jesus who has no problem doing any of those things. Number four, being overly concerned with physical well-being and or safety with physical well-being, with comfort or safety, when we care very much about those things, we will miss out. This is the seed that is too is in rocky ground and it's too shallow. And it says, this seed, the, the person hears the good news and immediately they get excited and they jump up and they're ready to go. But then when troubles or hardship or persecution comes, they wither away and die. Like, I'm not, I'm not signing up for this if this makes my life more difficult. If this is harder for me. This is also the disciples. Every time they're in a boat and a storm comes, 
they're going to get Jesus wrong. You'll find that out in Mark. Something about storms and waves, just like they, their theology gets crazy, okay? And they never quite see him right. Um, and, and so this is the second time. There's going to be a third time that they're in a boat, and I don't think there's a storm, but in the boat they miss Jesus again. Pretty big. Um, number five, last one, wanting Jesus to fit your own agenda for your life. And this will, be, this will come in Mark 8. And, and Mark 8 is considered the linchpin of the Gospel of Mark. Like the key text that kind of climaxes it and moves it towards its most important finishes in Mark 8. And we'll see Peter do this very thing in Mark 8. That he has his own agenda for what Jesus is supposed to be and how that's going to benefit Peter's life. All the disciples did. They're constantly coming to Jesus and saying, Hey, when you're reigning and sitting on your throne in your new kingdom... Which one of us gets to sit next to you? Because in their mind, this is going to benefit them in some very practical and really neat and cool ways. And when we have our own understanding of what Jesus ought to do for my life, that if I just follow Him, then like my marriage will work. If I just follow Him, then I'll be successful in business. If I just follow Him, then my kids are going to grow up and do fine and never cause any problems. And, and when we have those ideas in our head, that keeps us from seeing the real Jesus. And as He, when those things don't happen, we will continue to be disappointed and our hearts will continue to be hardened towards Him. So the question just for you is, do any of those five things describe you? Like, are, are there hints of those things in your life? Are there things there that need to be put to death so that your heart does not grow hard, so that Jesus doesn't pass you by with all the glory of the Father shining out right in front of you, and you fail to see Him? Let me pray about that. Dear God, I thank You for Your Word, and it's it's so big and it's so um, uh, deep and so full. And, and I mean, I'm just amazed. These things that I read this week that I had never even seen before. And I've been studying, studying this book for, uh, I guess, all my life in some sense. And, and there's still so much more to see. And I love that. That, that makes me excited. And uh, that gives me joy. And so I'm grateful for that. I also know that I miss things, not not just because I, I'm not reading or studying sometimes, but I miss things because um, of a hardness of heart, um, because I am a lot of times obsessed with my own comfort. And, and Lord, I pray this for myself and for uh, everyone else in here. Father, that in Your mercy, Your Holy Spirit would take the blinders off our eyes, that You would help us to see in our own lives where where the things that we want cause us to be blind to Jesus, cause us to have a hardness of heart towards Him, that You would help us to see those things and put them to death, remove them from us so that our heart would be soft towards You, so we would love You more. I ask You this in the name of Your Son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Um, we are done. Was there one more uh, announcement for tonight? I thought that there was. Okay, Okay. there's going to be some flyers up here for the Passion Conference. If that's something you're interested in, um, kind of learning a little bit about, um, some people possibly, well, when is that, January? Or 